Welcome to the BID mini-series, The Real Leaders of Net Zero, where we talk with CEOs about what they and their companies are doing to move the world to net zero. I'm your host, Mark Weedman. On this episode, I'm joined by Josu John Imaz, CEO of Repsol, a global multi-energy company based in Madrid, Spain. In 2019, Repsol was the first oil and gas company in the world to announce its commitment to be net zero by 2050. Why did they make that decision? What's their plan to get there? We'll talk upstream and downstream, electrification versus decarbonization, and why technology is the biggest ally in this ambitious effort. Josu John, welcome. Thank you, Mark. Could you give us a quick overview of Repsol and explain upstream versus downstream in your operations? Repsol is an energy company based in Spain. We were an oil and gas company that since years ago, we started a journey in moving towards a multi-energy view, providing to our clients all the energies they need, either hydrocarbons, gas, and also renewable power, either for electric mobility or to be used at home. We were, from the very beginning, a company with more downstreamers, let me say, than upstreamers. Downstream in our sector means all the industrial activity, in our cases, refining, chemical plants, LPG plants, and so on, and all the distribution and commercialization businesses we have to be very close to our clients. That means our service station and also the retail power business. We have our main downstream activity in Iberia, Spain, and Portugal also in Peru. When we talk in our business about upstream, we are talking about exploration and production activity of hydrocarbons. So that means oil and gas, because, I mean, Spain is not an oil producer country. We have, of course, an international footprint that is mainly based in North America, United States and Canada, Latin America, where, because our historical language linkages, we have a strong presence we have an exploration and production activity in the North Sea, UK and Norway, and also in Northern Africa, Algeria and Libya, producing gas in Indonesia. Let me say that we are mainly gas producers. That means that two-thirds of our total production, in what we call the upstream, the production of hydrocarbons, is gas. Natural gas, as you know, is a really important field, not only in terms of security of supply, as we are seeing today, but also in terms of transitioning and reducing the carbon footprint in the world. We were the first oil and gas company in the world committing with the 2050 net zero target. We launched that commitment in 2019. We have a clear pathway to get these targets. So today you're about two thirds in oil and gas. You expect that number to drop as you've made that commitment to get to net zero by 2050. Why is decarbonization part of your business and part of your strategy? First of all, because we know that we are part of the problem. Because hydrocarbons, they are CO2 emitters. We want to be part of the solution. That means that the world today has an important concern related to the emissions of greenhouse gases. And this kind of emissions has to be reduced. So we have a clear commitment to do that. It's important to measure this effort. So to know what we have to do 
We have defined an indicator. We are in some way engineers, chemists, and so on. That is called the carbon intensity index. That some way is measuring the total CO2 emissions we produce, not only in our operations, also taking into account the CO2 emissions of our products that is produced by our clients, divided by the total energy we produce, including here oil, gas, renewable, and so on talking about 2050 because it's far, but it's also important to have clear milestones and targets to evolve year after year. That means that by 2025, we are going to reduce 15% this carbon footprint and 28% by 2030. So doing that, we are going to be aligned with the effort that the world needs to fulfill the Paris Agreement targets. From a public policy perspective, I totally understand why we need to shift under the Paris Agreement. But as a CEO, as a steward to your shareholders, why do you care about reducing your carbon emissions? Because I want to have a profitable Repsol in 2021, 2022. I want to guarantee that we are building a company that could be profitable in 2030, 2040. Being profitable in the short term, having profits in a quarter is quite easy. In some way, the dilemma of a CEO is to try to combine both targets. I mean, being profitable today, delivering today, but at the same time, paving the way to be profitable in the long term. To do that, you need in some way, first of all, to have a clear vision about what to do. Second, to build, let me use the term, some kind of coalition where you have to include your employees, the high management of the company, your board that has to support this view, because sometimes you are going to suffer in some metrics in the short term to get these targets. And of course, your shareholders, they have to be part of this narrative. Saying that today, 40% of the current institutional investors of Repsol are investors sharing these ESG targets. That means that they want to invest in companies that are not only focused on having profits in the short term, but also building the foundations for being profitable in the long term. So let me say that we are doing that also to make money today, but mainly to be able to make money in the future. Why is decarbonization important for oil and gas companies for making money in the future? We have to gain the license to operate. The world is changing. We have to think that the world is going to develop a great effort to reduce the CO2 emissions in the future. I mean, otherwise we are not going to have solution in terms of temperature increasing, climate warming, and so on. That means that we have to think that the oil demand, not now, not perhaps in five years, but in 20, 30 years is going to be lower than what it is today. New forms of energy are appearing, and these forms of energy are going to be part of the energy basket that our clients are going to use. So I think that it makes sense, first of all, to leverage in the current client base we have to build this new business. I'm going to put you an example. I don't like to be very theoretical sometimes. If we have 24 million clients in Spain and Portugal, and we are selling them today, gasoline, diesel, LPG at home, and so on, it makes sense to start offering them not only the diesel they need for a car, perhaps the electric recharging service that they need for an electric car that is starting to be part of the current car fleet in Spain or in Portugal. We launched, for instance, 13 years ago, this electric vehicle recharging service in Spain. We were the first company 
starting with this service. We are today the company that is growing the most in the number of clients we have in the retail power business because we are starting to offer bundle offers to our clients, offering them to refuel or to fuel your car, but at the same time offering the possibility to have a full renewable power consumption at home. So that is part of our business. We have this competitive advantage, and at the same time, we are paving the way to be competitive in the future. It doesn't mean that oil is going to disappear from our world, because even in a world with no emissions, zero emissions, we are going to see a part of this oil production is going to be used to produce fibers, asphalts, fertilizers, plastics, and so on. All that is going to be needed. But probably a part of these energy demands is going to be fulfilled using some other forms of energy that could be renewable, that is going to be part of the basket. But let me say that sometimes we try to make a confusion between electrification and decarbonization, and it's not exactly the same. I mean, electrify is important. It's an important part of this effort, but we are going to need decarbonizing liquids to decarbonize a main part of the economy. For instance, planes, maritime sector, chemical companies, cement plants, and so on. are not going to be electrified knowing the current technologies in the short term. So we are going to bet also in favor of the carbonizing liquids. You're making an important point. When most people think about decarbonizing, in their minds, what they really mean is electrification. Yeah. Because they're talking about basically driving an electric car and using a heat pump to heat and cool their homes. That's what they're thinking. But what you're also saying is that actually huge parts of the carbon intensity of our economy come today from industry, from agriculture, and from things that cannot be electrified easily, like heavy trucking and long-distance airplanes. So what are the technologies and businesses that you're driving at Repsol to actually capitalize on the transition? We have quite a unique refining business in Europe in terms of competitiveness. We have five refineries in Spain. If you analyze in net cash margin terms all the European refineries, you could see that our five refineries are in the first quartiles in terms of competitiveness. So we are investing hard in these refineries and we are transforming in some way this concept of refinery and trying to shift them towards what we call multi-energy hubs. What does it mean? Oil is going to be a part of the feedstock of these refineries, but on top of oil, we are starting to use a feedstock, vegetable oil, recycled oils, animal fats, products coming from urban wastes, products coming from pyrolyzing plastics. To produce e-fuels or hydrogen, we are going to use CO2 industrial streams plus renewable power. All that is starting to be part of the feedstock of our refinery. So what is the output of all that? That the product we are producing, sometimes diesel, sometimes jets, sometimes gasoline, are more and more decarbonized. And their total carbon footprint, the scope three, is going to be reduced because a part of the CO2 they are emitting has been previously fixed because they come from wastes, vegetables, and so on. So that is part of this industrial transformation. From our point of view, that is going to be fully needed because otherwise we are not going to be able to decarbonize all these sectors you mentioned before. I want to capture this point. You've got lots of work to replace gas and petroleum for electricity generation, for mobility. But what you're saying is that for a long time, we will be using 
fuels come in liquid form. And what you're talking about is decarbonizing the production and the carbon content of those fuels so that airplanes will continue to fly without magical electric batteries, that ships will continue to go the oceans, but the fuel they will use will have a lower carbon content. Yeah. What's the biggest challenge in making that happen? Let me, first of all, say the advantages, because the first advantage is that that is going to allow us to decarbonize these sectors, because otherwise we are not going to have solutions in decades to decarbonize them. Second, that we are, as a society, saving a lot of money because the infrastructure is there, the plane is there, the engine is there, and the challenges, of course, there are a lot of challenges in this journey. The first one, we have to develop some technologies. We have to invest hard in these refineries. We are investing in Repsol, 400, 500 million euros per year in this business to decarbonize these plants. Today, for instance, we have a project that is going to be in operation next year, in 2023, that is going to produce 250,000 tons per year of sustainable biofuel coming from waste that is going to be used either for biodiesel, biojet, as a sustainable aviation fuel, and so on. We are launching another investment in Tarragona in the northeast part of Spain that is going to use urban waste, 400,000 tons per year, more or less, to produce methanol that could be used either for feed the chemical crackers or to produce plastics or to be combined with gasolines to decarbonize this gasoline. So we have technological challenges. We have to invest hard on that. Perhaps the unknown part of all that is that technology has to be developed for some of this application. But I think that on top of that, we need a more open mind from regulators, because sometimes when regulators are in some ways restricting their view about the technologies that could be used to decarbonize the world, they are reducing the incentive we could have to invest in these new technologies that are going to be fully needed to decarbonize the world. When you think about the technologies that exist today and the business models associated with those technologies, What's most attractive for you in investing today toward a decarbonized world? Short term, what is profitable today? Clearly speaking, biofuels, advanced biofuels, but in products where we could guarantee today the feedstock supply, power generation produced with wind and solar energy, and of course, all the areas related to the multi-energy supply to our clients in commercial terms. The first one is hydrogen, but from my point of view, we are fully committed with this pathway because we think that we have a unique position in the Iberian Peninsula to boost this business. And when we enter in new advanced biofuels, in some cases coming from biomass, coming from urban waste, when talking about what is called e-fuels or synthetic fuels, that are going to be produced, and talking about hydrocarbons that are, in molecular terms, diesel and gasoline molecules or jet molecules, but that are produced using as feedstock CO2 streams from an industrial stream that is going to be reduced at carbon monoxide, CO, and a hydrogen produced with renewable energy that, in combination with this carbon monoxide, is going to produce these hydrocarbons. That is not science fiction. It's something that we are starting to launch so I think that we have to invest in what is the short term, what is going to give us profits today. But at the same time, we have to pave the way to some technologies that could be in some years part of our business. 
And let me say that as an oil and gas company, it's part of our business also to combine risks and having a basket of investment work. We are taking different degrees of risks in our portfolio. Let's imagine that you and I start a venture capital firm together. Where would you make your biggest long-term bets on technology and business models changing? Let me say, and that is perhaps, I have a bias on that, because not only my history as a chemist, also because my background as a refiner in the chemical business of Repsol, but I think that in this decarbonization of liquids, that is perhaps one of the most hidden part of what we are going to need in coming years, we could have a unique opportunity to boost this business. And we are in the right place to do that because Spain is wonderful from the point of view of many things, style of life and so on. But on top of that, Spain is also a core country in terms of developing renewable businesses because we have not only the resource, sun, wind and so on. We have the talent because we started as a country in this business of renewable energy 25 years ago. We have the infrastructure to do that. So producing these new e-fuels, these new hydrogen, these new synthetic fuels, where we are going to use waste based in the circular economy. And at the same time, we are going to use renewable power as feedstock to produce these kind of products. And having the right industrial assets to do all that. You've worked in the public sector. Now you're leading a private firm. How do you think that government, companies, other social actors need to work together to drive decarbonization? I think that the dimension of the effort required a common effort, but not only from companies and from the public sector. I think that the rest of the society, also citizens, they have to be engaged in this effort because we need a clear view from the public sector defining in regulatory terms the targets and the pathways to achieve this figure. We need commitments from private companies with the sense of private owners managed companies like Repsol. And we need all, because we have to invest in these new low carbon platforms in this business. And we also going to need the commitment of the whole society because we also have to act on the demand. I think that being able to reduce the demand from consumers, and not only now, because we have in the midst of an energy emergency in Europe, also in terms of being able to cope with the CO2 emission effort. So I think that we need this coalition, this combined action among these three actors. Last question. What do you think is the single most important thing that needs to happen to get the world to net zero? Perhaps if I had to give you three answers, I said technology, technology, and technology. I think that technology is allowing us to achieve what we are doing. I mean, we can't imagine that 15 years ago. What we have achieved as a society in terms of producing the current cheap renewable power using solar panels, so I think that we have to invest in technology and we have from the public sector to allow companies in an open-minded view to incentivize this effort to invest in technology. I think that technology is going to be one of the biggest allies we are going to have to get this ambitious effort. Yosu John, thank you again for joining this episode. Thank you, Mark. It has been a pleasure.
This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock and not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice and is not a recommendation, offer, solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the reader. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. BlackRock does and may seek to do business with companies covered in this podcast. As a result, listeners should be aware that the firm may have a conflict of interest that could affect the objectivity of this podcast. In the US and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the UK and non-European economic area, EEA countries, this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management, UK Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, Registered Office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London EC2 and 2DL. Telephone plus 4402077433000. Registered in England and Wales, number 0202039. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. Please refer to the Financial Conduct Authority website for a list of authorized activities conducted by BlackRock. In the European economic area, this is issued by BlackRock Netherlands BB is authorized and regulated by the Netherlands Authority for the Financial Markets. Registered office Amstel Line 11096 HA Amsterdam. Telephone 0205495200. Telephone 3120549500. Trade register number 17068311. Free protection telephone calls are usually recorded. For investors in Switzerland, this document is marketing material. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited. Company registration number 20001043N. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities or Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited ABN 13006165975AFSL23523 BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. Before making any investment decision, you should assess whether the material is appropriate for you and obtain financial advice tailored to you having regard to your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, and circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice, nor an offer or a solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund, nor shall any such shares be offered or sold to any person in any jurisdiction in which an offer, solicitation, purchase, or sale would be unlawful under the securities law of that jurisdiction. If any funds are mentioned or inferred to in this material, it is possible that some or all the funds may not have been registered with the securities regulator of Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Mexico, Panama, Peru, Uruguay, or any securities regulator in any Latin American country and thus may not be publicly offered within any such country. The securities regulators of such countries have not confirmed the accuracy of any information contained here in the provision of investment management and investment advisory services as a regulated activity in Mexico, thus it's subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the investment services guide available at www.blackrock.com forward slash MX. Copyright 2022 BlackRock Incorporated. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Incorporated. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.